Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. All right, let me get my things in order here. Are you ready for the word this morning? I can preach and cry at the same time. Just you watch. <laughs> Amen. Turn in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, wow. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for showing me so much love, guys. Thank you. Second Corinthians chapter 5, it's on page 993, in my Bible anyway. <laughs> you like that, Frank? Yeah, I got, I got a nice little chuckle out of you on that one. Second Corinthians chapter 5, reading in verse 17, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things. Somebody say, all things have become new. Now all these things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, it's important before we keep reading, I just want to point out that word reconciliation. And the fact that God has given to us, that is the church, the ministry of reconciliation. Do you know that our job as the church is not to judge people? Did you know that our job as the church is not to impose things upon people unjustly? But our job as the church of Jesus Christ is the ministry of reconciliation. And I I long for the day in my own life and in the life of our church and in the life of churches all around the world when every conversation and every, uh, everything that we say and everything that we do is aimed at bringing someone closer to Jesus reconciling someone to Christ. Amen. Let me keep going. He's reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or holding their trespasses against them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Amen. I'm I'm continuing today a series that I started last week titled This Side of the Cross. There's so many things that you and I get to experience in our lives because we're on this side of the cross. And it's really encouraging. If you would bow your heads, let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come before your word. Lord, I pray that you would give unto me today wisdom, discretion, and insight to speak the word with accuracy and clarity. That as I speak today, that it would be more than just me speaking, God, that it would be you speaking through me. Lord, through your word, would you penetrate the hearts of those who are listening? cause light, life, revelation, and truth 
to engage with them. Cause their hearts to come alive as I talk this morning. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the thanksgiving and the recognition for these things. In Jesus' name, if you believe it, say amen. Amen and amen. Okay. I don't know why in church we say amen and amen and amen. That's, that seems like a very churchy thing to do. Amen and amen. Like one was enough. Okay. So this side of the cross, I'm, I'm going to do just a moment of review for you. And then I'm going to carry the message forward from where we left off last week. Last week, we talked about the reality that, uh, of how necessary the cross was to cleanse humanity. That, that without the cross, without the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, there is no way for human hearts to become new. We talked about the reality that all of us are born into sin. That when you're, when, when you're born, uh, you know, you were born into sin. That every person, every heart is, is, is born into wickedness. And we said that before the cross, there was no way for humanity to get clean. And, and the beauty of the, of the scripture that we're reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, it says that if we're in Christ, that being in Christ is what makes all things new. That it's being in Christ that is what causes me to become a new creation, a new spirit, a new soul from the inside out. That the work that Jesus did at Calvary was the most significant work, and, and it was what he did once and for all. You remember that I brought Claire up here for an illustrated sermon, and I'm going to bring my whole family, actually, except for Sophia, up here in just a few minutes for another illustration. <clears throat> Although Sophia would be fun as an addition, but she's in kids' church this morning. But, but, but you remember I brought Claire up, and, and, and I... I demonstrated how in the old system, in the old covenant, the, the best that the old covenant could do was cover over the sins of humanity. But how in this new covenant, because of what Jesus did, sin is actually removed. We're freed from the bondage of sin and we're given a brand new identity. We're given a, a, a whole new way of living. And we're ushered into a new family and a new covenant, a new agreement with God. I mentioned this, and uh, <laughs> I mentioned this, this, this scripture, Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. Let me read it for you and, then you, and then I'll tell you why I'm laughing. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his own ways, according to the fruit of his doings. You see, under the old covenant system, every person is judged according to their ways and according to their doings. A wicked heart results in wicked deeds, and people are then judged according to their wicked deeds. But on this side of the cross, everything's different. That's all changed. When you're in Christ, your heart is not exceedingly wicked anymore. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. I said that. And then I used some examples last week, Abraham, David, Solomon, and I just listed Moses. I listed a bunch of people from the Old Testament, and we posted the video online. And it was the best thing ever because yesterday uh, we were sitting in the living room, and Brian, Brian comes in. She's like, did you see the post on Facebook? And I was like, well, yeah, I got, it was great. We posted a video. It's awesome. She's like, you got uh, somebody that's not happy about what you said. And I was like, yes. 
I was so thrilled. I was like, this is my, on my birthday. This is the best day ever. This was awesome. I got some fun names called, uh, you know, at me yesterday, which was great. But, uh, but I made the point and I used those old characters in the Bible specifically to make this point that even though Abraham and Moses and Elijah and, and David and Solomon and all these people had such profound experiences with God and were used so mightily of God, in their hearts they were still sinners. And that was the point that I was making. And this, this gentleman didn't get the whole point, which is fine. But, but that's the point that I was making is that even though Abraham, the Bible says that he, it, that it, Romans and James says that Abraham uh, w- w- had faith in God and as a result it was accounted to him for righteousness and he became a friend of God. Notice you can be God's friend and not be his son. Think about that for just a second. This is actually where I want to pick this up because on the, on the old side of the cross, you're judged according to your deeds. So Abraham and David and Solomon and all the, all the prophets, all of our heroes from the Old Testament, they had a lot of good deeds and they actually loved God, but they had no means of salvation because Jesus hadn't died the perfect death yet and, they, and, and he hadn't cleansed them of their sins. So at the very best, like, 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 like Romans and James says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him. For righteousness. What does that mean? It means Abraham looked righteous on paper. And God treated him like a righteous person, but he still wasn't righteous. He still had a wicked heart. He still had a wicked heart, if you're watching. God could treat him like a righteous person to an extent. But he could never be clean on the inside. Abraham, though he trusted in God and though he was his friend, he was not God's son. He wasn't in the family. He was still an old creature. David was a man after God's own heart. What does that speak to? It speaks to his intentions. He was after God's heart. But he still had a heart of sin. He still had a heart of wickedness. And David is such a great example of faith and he's such a powerful guy. But he's still was an old creature. He still had a heart that was wicked towards God. His intentions were good. He desired God, and God even anointed him, but his heart was still bound up in sin. This actually explains why David could go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, eat the showbread that was only reserved for the, the, uh, the priests, He could go into the presence of the Lord and survive and then come out and fornicate with Bathsheba. Why? Because he still had the propensity, he still had the nature of sin on the inside of him. Though he wanted God and though his intentions were good and even many times his actions were spectacular, he was a model of faith, but he was still broken on the inside. And the inside is what Jesus came to fix. Both of these cases, again, using Abraham and David and every other case in the Old Covenant, the problem is still with the nature of sin that was resonant in every human being. Until Jesus came to die, the best that humanity could do was to cover over sin rather than remove it from the person's heart. 
So even though our heroes like David, Abraham, Solomon, etc., have amazing stories and are amazing examples of faith, each of them still has this fatal flaw. They were still born with a sinful heart. They still needed Jesus just as much as you and me. A new heart is what God was after. I want to show you this in Scripture if you go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Such a profound chapter, and if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read the whole thing, which we don't have time to do. We're going to jump to verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25. A lot of the people in that video you saw taught me this passage, by the way. Ezekiel 36, 25. Joey Roberts, if you're watching, I only have one wife. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Watch what God says. This is God speaking here. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Watch, the, watch verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is a, what we call in theology a prophetic scripture meaning it's prophesying or foretelling something that was to come. In this case, Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of God, is prophesying and foretelling of the new covenant. This, this passage is saying the same thing that Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. What does it mean to be a new creature? I'll take out the old heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll put my spirit to be in you, and then me from the inside working out will cause you to walk in my statutes. You see, you can't live as God has destined you to live apart from his spirit living on the inside of you. Apart from your heart being recreated, you and I can't do it. And that was the fatal flaw with David and, and Abraham and Isaac and all those guys. A new heart is what the Lord is after. In the ancient world, the word heart is used to describe the spirit and the soul of a person. It describes the deepest, most intangible parts of a person's being. I like to say it this way, the core of someone. We talk about the spirit or we talk about the heart. Like, like what do we say all the time? I love you with all my heart. Right. We don't say, I love you with all my kidneys, right? I love you with all my knees. No, we say the heart. Why? Because it's the heart that represents the deepest, most significant part of who we are. So when I tell my wife or my children or my mom or somebody, I say, I love you with all my heart. I love you from the deepest part of me. I tell the Lord, Lord, I love you with all my heart. I'm loving you from the deepest part of me. 
And, and in the ancient world, they really understood that really, really well. So God, when he's communicating how he's going to redeem humanity, he says, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to give you a heart that actually wants to love me. You're not only your body. You're, you're, whole, you're, you're a whole lot more than that. I'm, gonna get, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I'm going to get into it in a minute. You're a spirit. You have a soul and you live in a body. There's so much more to you than just your fingers and toes. And God's desire is for you and I to have a new heart, a clean heart, to be a new creation in Christ. And when he puts that new heart in you, that new spirit in you, you know what happens? You start to love him more. It's also called the belly in Scripture. I also thought this was kind of funny. Jesus, remember what Jesus said to the disciples? Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Talking about the same thing, the heart, the deepest part of you. I heard somebody say this one time, and I thought it was really good. It says, we're not humans having a spiritual experience. We're spirits having a human experience. You've probably heard that before. Have you heard that before? Because, you know, people talk, and they say, well, you know, I was, I was out on the parkway. I had a spiritual experience. I was watching a sunrise or a sunset and I had a spiritual experience. I went out in the woods and got quiet and had a spiritual experience. The reality is when you have a spiritual experience, you're just having an experience that, that has been trying to happen all, the, all along. But you and I just never get quiet enough as people to hear God. See, the reality is we're not human beings that are in seeking after spiritual experiences. We're a spirit first. God gave us a soul and he put us inside a body. So we're spirits having a human experience. Does that make sense? Let me show it to you this way. If you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And then I'll have my wife and kids come up here in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, one of the greatest passages in the whole Bible. About five, six, six years ago, I did a study on the book of Ephesians and took the whole church through the book of Ephesians in eight weeks. I may do it again because it was so good. If you've never read Ephesians, you need to get into it. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just trying to figure out where to start. I, I guess let's just look in verse 4 because it probably gets to it quick, quick as possible. I'd like to start in Ephesians 1, 1, but I think that might take us a little too long. Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at verse 4. But God who is rich in what? Mercy. Stop right there for just a second because if you don't get this part, it's going to be hard to get the rest of it. God who is rich in mercy. Everybody say rich, rich. in mercy. Rich has become a word we don't want to talk about in church for a number of reasons. But let me, let me tell you what this word rich means in the Greek. Are you ready for this? The, the, the Greek word rich here is the word plutos. You, you probably haven't heard this word or, or maybe don't use it very often, but, but we use the word plutos. Uh, it, it informs our English word plutocrat. Does anybody know what a plutocrat is? My daughter's shaking her head no. A plutocrat is someone who is so wealthy that it's impossible to determine the scope and size of their wealth because their wealth goes faster than you can calculate it. Like, like Mark Smith here is a plutocrat. 
And uh, that's what you get for making a face at me and saying something. That was, no, that was good. That was good. I love you, man. No, no think about this. Like, like Warren Buffett or, or, or somebody on that level, Jeff Bezos. You know, whatever you think about these people, it doesn't matter. But they got a lot of money. A guy like Warren Buffett, his wealth to actually pinpoint down to the penny how much he's worth, you can't actually do it. Because his wealth grows and fluctuates so fast and so quickly that, and it's so vast. Like, 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 like when you're in college, it's real easy to figure out your net worth. <laughs> okay? It's real easy. It's like, uh, I got eight bucks. Okay? Like, that's my net worth. When you're a plutocrat, you can't figure it out because your money's making money. Anyway, anyways. That word, plutocrat, comes from the Greek word plutos, which is the word rich all throughout the book of Ephesians. So the Bible's saying to us here that God, who is so vastly rich in mercy that it's impossible to figure out how much he's actually got, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has made us what? Alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Isn't that amazing? You see, when it comes to the heart, Ezekiel says God wants to put a new heart in us. Why? Because our old heart's dead. Did you ever think about this? When you were born, born in sin, you were born dead. Everybody was spiritually stillborn. That's why Ezekiel, in the language he uses, is so important. He said, I'll take out from you a heart of what? Stone. The stone's dead, man. Stones don't grow. Right? A stone represents something that's dead. See, the reality here, the big deal, is it's more than just a matter of good and evil. It's a matter of life. And death. Everything on the old side of the cross was dead. And the best God could do was to use some dead things for his glory. Now, in this new covenant, what God does is he makes us alive by putting a new heart in us and a new spirit in us and he fills us with his spirit. Now, Peter says that we are an altar of living stones. The best God could do in the old covenant was to take a bunch of dead things and put his spirit on them and start to do stuff. Now what we have is he has put a new spirit on the inside so we're no longer dead things. And now instead of his spirit coming on us, his spirit lives in us and he actually works through us and we cooperate together to change the world. It's incredible. It's the new creation. So under the old covenant and under the old way of sin, everything works from the outside in. Everybody say outside in. Now under the new covenant with a new heart and a new spirit for you and I, 
everything works from the inside out. If you don't get anything else that I'm saying today, get that. Everything in your old life and your old creation, when you were a slave to sin, when you just did whatever you wanted to do and, and it didn't matter how it felt and there was no repercussions and you just sinned and you were happy about it. All of that was outside in. In the new covenant, in this new creation, God's working in you and through you from the inside out. I would like to welcome my family to the stage. All right. I got to figure out who's going to be who. You want to be the spirit or the flesh? There, you stand right there. You be the spirit. You get to be the soul. You're the complicated one. And you get to be the flesh. Okay? All right. So just take a step forward this way. There you go. Get very good. Okay. I want to read you a scripture real quick so that you see that I'm not a quack making this stuff up. First Thessalonians chapter 5, <laughs> verse 23. Listen to this scripture. First Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, your whole what? Spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless to the coming of the Lord. The whole spirit, soul, body. Now, when we said, when we talked about the word heart just a minute ago, we're talking about these two. When, we talk, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about this one. Sorry. Your whole spirit, soul, and body. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. When God went to work in you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when you, by grace, got saved through faith, as we just read in, in Ephesians 2, when you became alive, God gave you a new one of these. He gave you a new spirit. He made you, remember we said last week, you're a brand new original. That's why, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but listen, that's why it hurts to sin after you get saved. That's why it feels so weird. Because on the inside, you're new, but the outside still wants to act like the old one. Okay? Sorry, Abigail. It's all right. She's good with it. She's good with it. So when you get saved, what gets changed? What, what becomes new? Your spirit. Okay. Your soul is, is, the Bible teaches us, your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Mind, will, and emotions. Your thinker, your doer, and your feeler. I like to say it that way because it makes it really easy to understand. Your soul is your thinker, your feeler, and your doer. The part of you that's motivated to do things, that comes from your soul. Your thoughts, your whole thought life comes from your soul. Your whole emotional framework comes from your soul. Listen, in, in our modern day and in our current society, we spend a lot of time working on this one, our body. We spend a bit of time working on our soul, 
and we spend almost no time. This is my wife. I'm not going to move her head around. I'm smarter than I look. We spend almost no time working on this. This is the part of you that communes with God. It's not that God can't influence your soul. And it's not that he can't influence your flesh. In, in, in fact, David actually said this. He said, my heart and flesh cry out for you, the living God. You see, you can get to a place where you're so yielded to the spirit of God that even your flesh desires to get up and pray. That even, even in you, you're just like, whew, I'm awake. I'm ready to pray. I'm ready to be with God. I'm ready to do what he wants me to do. It takes time, but you can train your flesh to, to behave. Amen. Now, here's the deal. Everything happens in the new covenant. How did I say? Inside out. Starts here, influences here, and ultimately influences here. Listen, I'm trying to be real practical with you this morning because if you struggle with sin, this will help you. If you struggle with fear, if you struggle with depression and anxiety, if you struggle with, you know, with things that got a hold in your life that you don't want them to have a hold in your life, you struggle with addiction, this will help you. God is all the time wanting to speak to your spirit and speak to your heart. This is the new part of you. This is the part that's getting training, that's getting, that takes some time. You got you, you to gotta form new habits. You got to form new patterns of thought. How do you do that? God speaks to your spirit through his word, through his spirit, through preaching, through interactions with other believers, in worship, in prayer. God ministers to your spirit. As he does that, it informs your mind. And if you stay yielded to him long enough, your flesh will come right along. Now, y'all turn and face the right wall. Put your hands on the person in front of you. Inside out. Did you? Did you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I believe you. Jump into line. Rock your butt. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> I'm going to have to recover from that. Thank you. Okay, now I'm going to play the Holy Spirit for this part. Okay. This is the way God designs it to be. Okay. He's going to come arm in arm with your spirit. He's going to speak to you. He's going to talk to you. He wants to relate to you. And he's going to lead you in the way that he wants you to go. And when everything's working inside out the way it's supposed to, everything goes the way it's supposed to. And you can follow God. How, hey, flesh, how hard is this? Not hard at all, is it? Hey, here's what the enemy wants to do. Spin around. Put your hands on the person in front of you. Here's what the enemy wants to do. The exact same thing, but in reverse. Hey, follow me. Do what you feel. Do what feels good. Listen to the liars. Listen to those things that, that you know, just reject my word. Don't spend time with me. Just make it all about you and your flesh. What happens? Get, who's getting left behind? The spirit. Get, who's getting really left behind? God, he's still way over here. You see, it's super practical, but this is how life actually works on this side of the cross. 
The whole idea is that you commune and fellowship, your spirit communes and fellowships with the spirit of God. And, and what did he say in Ephesians or in Ezekiel 36? He said, I'll put my spirit on the inside of you. That means that God's spirit is living bunked up with your spirit. And all it takes to do great things for God, all it takes to be the person God's called you to be and fulfill his will for your life is for you to listen to the still, small voice on the inside. You know, you know that God is as easy to hear as your own thoughts? I didn't say he was your own thoughts, but he'll influence them if you let him. People struggle to hear God, and I'm like, why? He lives inside of you. Selah. Let's do it. Let's look at it again. One more time. Come on. Come on out here. Hands on the person in front of you. You guys are doing great. You get candy after this. I'm the Holy Spirit. I'm inviting you to walk with me. And I'm going to give you everything you need. And it's so easy. And your flesh will follow. Now, let me show you what happens. Come back to the middle. Assume that same position because, here, come back, come, come back over here, here we go. Face to the right, do just, just as you were. Hands on the person in front of you, yeah, okay. Uh, what happens when a person starts sinning who's already a new creation? I want to speak to you to help you this morning. What happens when you sin as a new creation? What happens is this person turns and engages. No, no, stay right there. This person turns and engages here. The soul and the flesh get in cahoots, and it creates conflict right here. This is the part of you, your spirit, that's alive to God. This is the part of you that God is, is wanting to work with. Saying, if you'll, if you'll do the things I've commanded you to do, you'll be blessed. If you'll listen to my voice, I'll lead you where I want you to go. If you'll follow hard after me, everything you need will be taken care of. I'm here to support you and bless you and be your father, and I'm working with you. But, but if your flesh and your mind get in cahoots, your soul, it creates friction and tension between the spirit and the soul. This is where a lot of Christians live. And they don't know why they're tormented. Because their flesh, they got some addictions and they got some habits and they got some things going on here in their flesh. And their flesh and mind are in cahoots. Their flesh says something, hey, we ought to do some sin. And, and the mind is, is not renewed to the word of God. And so it just says, okay, let's do it. And all of a sudden, tension and friction is created here between your heart and between your thoughts. This is why it hurts and it's weird and it's awkward when you sin once you've already become a Christian, once you've already become a new creation in Christ. Because the Spirit of God's still living in you mm -hmm. and He's still fellowshipping with your spirit. He's still in union with your spirit. Mm -hmm. But your flesh and your mind are running amok. Okay, chill out. You guys, y'all go sit down. Y'all go sit down. I know. Good job. Good job. Uh, that, that bottle was just destined for the floor. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Thank you. Do you see the illustration? 
What part of you became new when you got saved? Your heart, your spirit. What part of you is still being saved? Your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. That's why this word is so important. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that we're supposed to have our minds renewed to the word of God. What happens when there's conflict in our spirit and soul? What happens when, when my mind, my emotions are butting heads with what God is doing on the inside in my heart? Conflict happens between these two and it creates something in us called guilt. And I want to close by talking to you about this. When the Lord put his spirit on the inside of you, your spirit became alive to him. He put a brand new nature in you. He hardwired you for righteousness. He hardwired your inside to seek after him. Do you know that your heart actually wants God more than anything else? If you're a Christian, if you're saved, if you've given your life to Christ, your heart actually wants God more than anything. The problem with us is that our minds are too loud and our flesh is too loud. We haven't learned how to temper our, our flesh and renew our mind to the word. So, so, so what happens is the enemy comes with some temptation. And here's my heart just wanting Jesus and being connected to God and my spirit is alive to God. And the enemy comes and some temptation comes and gets a hold of my flesh. And if my mind is immature... My mind just yields to it. And again, what you saw just a minute ago, the flesh and the, and the soul are just having a party. And this conflict is created. And then something happens. I become aware of my sin. And this red flag in my heart pops up. It's called guilt. Guilt is the awareness of the fact that I've sinned or failed in some way. Anybody ever had guilt before? Nobody. All right, good. Yeah, just Frankie and I. We'll just have a healing line for all the liars in the room as soon as service is over. That's right. Get, come and get your heart right with Jesus. <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, guilt is the awareness of the fact that I have sinned. We've all dealt with it. Because guilt brings this, this, this feeling that I don't like. But can I tell you something? The Bible has a word for guilt. It's the word conviction. Guilt is the awareness of the fact that I have fallen short of God's best for my life. Guilt is, an, is a red flag that lets me know my flesh and my soul got together and ran off course. But when handled properly, guilt should quickly lead me to repentance and back into the arms of God. If, if it's handled the way that it's supposed to, if it's handled the way God means it to, the moment you and I get out of line and our flesh gets wonky, we should feel that sense of conviction, that sense of guilt that says, wait a minute, I'm missing it. Let me repent and get back on track with the Lord. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Can I ask you a question? What's the sorrow of the world? If, if godly sorrow is, is guilt, it's, it's an awareness of, that I've done wrong, it's conviction from the Holy Spirit. If that's godly sorrow, what is worldly sorrow? Shame. Amen. There's some differences. The feelings of guilt are uncomfortable, but they're bearable. The feelings, the feelings of conviction, oh, I missed it, I fell short. It's uncomfortable, but it's bearable because it's designed to produce within me a repentance that draws me back to God. Oh, Father, I, you know what? Forgive me, I'm sorry, Lord, I missed it. First John Chapter 1 says that it's, it's, it says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess. So, so this idea of guilt, what the world calls guilt, the Bible calls it conviction, is designed to bring me back into repentance to God. What the Bible calls condemnation is shame. It's another animal altogether. And I want to close with this today because I want to speak to the shame in your life for a second. Conviction, guilt is the, is the godly sorrow that leads me back to repentance. Shame is the worldly sorrow which produces death. Shame is guilt that was never dealt with, never repented of. See, the Holy Spirit is oftentimes trying to get a hold of us, tapping us on the shoulder. Hey, hey, you missed it. Come back. You're better than that. Your nature's new on the inside. You fell short. I told you to go left and you went right. I love you. Come on back. You see, conviction is designed to, to lead me to repentance, to, to show me that I missed it in an area and I fell short. Father, forgive me. I know that you forgive me. I know that you forgave me when Jesus died on the cross. Now I'm going to receive that forgiveness and come back into fellowship with you. But if, let me, can I tell you something? If you ignore the tapping of the spirit on your shoulder, if you ignore his voice when he's wooing you with conviction, see, conviction is like the wooing of God. Come back. If you ignore that and you ignore it and you ignore it and you ignore it and you ignore it and you ignore it, the Bible tells us in the book of James that our conscience becomes seared. We become dull in our soul and we begin to embrace shame. And that, what started as conviction, turns into this worldly, worldly sorrow called shame. Shame is what guilt becomes when I don't repent. Shame is what makes me hide. Shame is what makes me retreat. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They sinned. God, God came into the garden looking for them. What was Adam's response? He said, I hid because I was naked and ashamed. What did God immediately do? Cover him. See, God's heart is always, always 
for reconciliation. That's why I stopped at the very beginning in 2 Corinthians 5 to point out this idea that God's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Your job and my job is to help lift shame off of people and tell them God has reconciled you back to himself. That he loves you with such an unquenchable, ridiculous love that he's got so much mercy in his heart for every single time that you have missed it, every single time that you've fallen short, every time that the Holy Spirit tried to tap on your shoulder and you rejected it and you said no, he's got mercy to welcome you and lift the shame from you. Shame is what makes me retreat. Shame is what convinces me that I'm the victim. I can tell you from experience and having counseled people and worked with people now over the past decade, I can tell you that every time you find a person with a victim mentality, if you, if you stay there long enough, you'll uncover some shame that's creating that. Shame, it's a funny thing. Shame is the same thing that will convince you that you're a victim and at the same time convince you that you need to be the one to fix the problem. Remember Adam and Eve. Before God slaughtered an animal and made coverings for them, they tried to make their own coverings. Remember? They covered themselves with fig leaves. See, shame will convince you that you made such a huge mess and you need to fix every ounce of it. I'm here to tell you that's what redemption is for. You can't fix the sin problem. Jesus already fixed it. All you can do is accept and believe whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's me. That's you. Shame is a serious issue. If, if condemnation and guilt is the red flag that is supposed to provoke me toward the truth, you need to understand that shame is the thing that will provoke you away from the truth. The more shame you have, the, the less you want to come clean and embrace the truth. Can I tell you something? Shame, if you let it live in your life, shame is attacking your future by prohibiting you of being released from your past. Shame is the tool of the enemy to hijack your future by not letting you get free of your past. And I'm here to tell you today that God wants you to no longer be a slave to shame. But that there is redemption in the name of Jesus. There's freedom, there's cleansing, there's purity, there's rest. Have you ever, have you ever done this? Have, have you ever finally come clean after you've been telling a lie for a long time? Anybody besides me? I know I'm the pastor. I never lie. I've had times in my life where I've, where I've, where I've covered myself and covered for myself and, and lied to protect myself. And, 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 it, and, it, and it's happened over and over again to the point that it gets exhausting to keep up with the lie and to keep up with the charade. And then finally I go, okay, I just got to get clean. And I come out with it. 
Has anybody ever done that besides me? Don't you understand? Don't you remember the freedom that comes when you unload the shame? Say, I don't care what, you, what anybody thinks about me. I just got to get clean. I just got to, I got to let it out. Some of us are living with shame in this room this morning. Some of you watching by Facebook Live and by stream, you're living with shame this morning. You're a new creation in Christ. Your spirit has been made alive to God. You were just like, the, just like that uh, conga line of my family up here. Spirit's alive to God. But, you, but at some point, your flesh got a little haywire and your soul and your flesh got together. And now you're carrying around shame. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to bear it for another second. Because the Bible says that whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And there's freedom for you this morning. And it doesn't matter what you did and it doesn't matter where you've come from and it doesn't matter how it looked and what the results were. I'm telling you, it, it, today's the last day that you need to hide. I want to help you this morning. I want to pray for you. And I want, to see, I want to see you get back in the right alignment where your soul is listening to your spirit and your flesh is listening to your soul. And all of you is following God. But I understand that sometimes shame stands in the way of us, of us being willing to do that. I want you, if you would, to stand to your feet this morning. As we close, I want to give you an opportunity, as I often do, to make your life right with the Lord. Can we sing nothing but the blood? What can wash away my sins? I'm going I'm to pray over you, and we're going to worship together. And I want to give you the opportunity this morning, if you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, or if you have and you say, I'm like, I'm Pastor, I'm like that person that I've been dealing with a lot of shame. I want you to get free today. I want to give you the opportunity to come to the altar and let me pray for you and get free today. Here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to ask you about it. I'm not here to pry into your past. I'm here to help you lay the ax to it. I don't care what you did. I don't care when you did it. I don't care who you did it with. There's opportunity for you to be free this morning. So I, 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 want, I want us to sing this song and, and the altar is open. If you want to come give your life to Jesus or if you want to get free from shame this morning, then I want you to come down to the altar. I'm going to give you a minute to do it and we're going to sing. Let's you come and just sing. Let's sing what can wash away my sins. Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.